So a lot of, uh, of what I'm gonna communicate tonight comes from this fellow right here. His name is uh, Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross. And uh, he is uh, an astronomer. He runs an organization called Reasons to Believe. He's written a lot of books. Uh, this is just one of two or three of his books that I have. Um, and it's called Why the Universe is the Way It Is. Now, the reason why I asked Leo if uh, the youth would be with us tonight is because you're going to hear a lot of these things in school, right? So this is not as fun as being upstairs, but I want you to have the ability to understand that believing the Bible is not anti-science. It's not anti-intellectual, all right? So um, I was, oh, let's see where it is. I was given a magazine not too long ago um, by someone, and this is a magazine from an organization that promotes what is called creation science, and this is a more literal understanding of the Bible, uh, a belief that the universe was created in six literal days, that... Um, The universe is uh, 6,000 years old. And uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read from uh, an article called Six Biological Evidences for a Young Earth, okay? So that you'll understand this position. What does the Bible tell us about the age of the earth? Not only does the Bible describe how God created earth and its life forms in six days, Genesis also contains detailed genealogies and chronologies. Based on Hebrew Masoretic texts, one can deduce Earth's age to be about 6,000 years. In contrast, evolutionists believe the Earth is 4.6 billion years old and that life here got going about 3.5 billion years ago. Right? So that is that perspective and that position. This is um, concerning from Hugh Ross's book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, concerning a biblical basis for an ancient universe and earth. Many scientists and others write off Christianity as a non-rational belief system because of the widely publicized notion that the Bible dates the origin of the universe and the earth at just thousands rather than billions of years ago. Purveyors of this notion vociferously defend it as the biblical teaching, and yet the majority of Christian scholars disagree. Did you hear that? The majority of Christian scholars disagree, not just scientists. In fact, a literal and consistent reading of the Genesis 1 narrative alongside two dozen parallel or elaborative Bible passages demands an ancient creation date, one that accords with the scientific data. The biblical case for an ancient creation appears in some detail in my book, A Matter of Days. And then he talks about a summary of that material. His website is called reasons.org. So you don't even have to buy one of his books. Go to reasons.org and uh, you will find a treasure trove of information. So um, he's a, an astronomer, but he's got a whole staff of uh, PhDs that study these sorts of things, okay? Um, so Sunday, I tried to go over the major ideas that I would hope you would gather from uh, the reality that God created the heavens and the earth, right? that God created the universe, 
that complex order and design reinforce that reality, that there is a way things are supposed to be because God made them a certain way, that everything was originally created to be good, that humans are exceptional because we're created in God's image, that humans were created to rule over the rest of creation, and that the universe exists for a reason, and so do you, and that is to give glory to God. Now, those are my overall um, takeaways from Genesis 1 that I wanted you to uh, solidify, okay? Let's look at Genesis and science. This is uh, uh, a way of harmonizing current understanding, uh, the current understanding, uh, from a scientific perspective. Now, what you're holding in your hand there, we will get to, but that is a scientific understanding of when things came about, right? So, when we look at Genesis chapter 1, the error that is made is that it is read literally rather than literarily. What do you think I mean by that? It's... Okay, a metaphor is, is a, a, a literary term, certainly. Um, it is literature, not a scientific text. In fact, one of the mistakes that people make when they read the Bible is they read it all as if it were just one book that is, uh, has identical literature in it, and it doesn't. The Bible has 66 discrete books by 35, 36, 37 different authors. It was written over a period of 14 to 1500 years. Now, it has one inspired author behind its uh, author that inspired all of those writers behind it. But we need to look at the type of literature that we're reading and we need to not cram our own understanding into that. So, for instance, when you read the Psalms, that's a different type of literature than when you read one of the Gospels, right? The Gospels are narratives, and the Psalms are songs. Uh, the Psalms are poems. Do you read a poem the same way you read a novel? No. You do not. If you do, you don't understand literature, right? So I'm not saying that you have to have this vast education on literature in order to be able to understand the Bible. What I'm trying to do is get you to open your mind a bit to recognize that when you read the Bible, it's not all wussy-wig. You say, what? Wussy-wig. What you see is what you get. It's not all like that. So up here on the screen, uh, you see a slide, and that was created in Keynote. And it now has been turned into a JPEG, and it's being displayed on a computer that is sending it to this projector. What you don't see is what is the code that is under all of that. See, we have all of these applications that we use on our phones and on our computers, and they're wussy-wig. What you see is what you get. They're easy to work with. So when the internet first came around and you know we were all trying to get web pages online, you had to learn to code 
in order to get a web page online. And the code that you're writing looks nothing like what people see when it comes up on their screen, right? On their web browser. Um, the code is more complex. The same thing with your computer. Every application on your computer has code under it. And so I know that uh, they are exposing, increasingly uh, exposing students to, to coding in some you know, basic HTML and that sort of thing. Although I think HTML is not used nearly as much anymore. Um, but nonetheless, what I'm trying to get at is we have something to look at that all of us can understand. If you were to see the code behind this, it is unlikely that you would understand it. Do you kind of see where I'm heading here? So God has given us a picture of the creation of the world in which we live. You're not getting the code. Scientists are interested in the code. They want to know how. Right? And so we err when we try to see the picture as the code, if that makes sense to you. All right? So what I'd like to do, um, you guys have Bibles with you? I, I know we don't always have them with us because um, we display stuff on the screen for you and all that other stuff. You got a Bible there? Yeah? You turn to Genesis chapter 1. What are you using? Bible.com? No, I got an app. The Bible app? Yeah. yeah. Thanks. So what translation do you have? NLT. NLT? Yeah. All right. Go ahead and read it in the NLT. Nice and loud. First verse? Nope. The whole chapter. The whole chapter? <laughs> All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there were light, and God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness night. And the evening passed, and morning came, making the first day. Then God said, Let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of heaven from the waters of earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of earth from the waters of the heavens. God called the space sky. And the evening passed, and morning came. Mark the second day. Then God said, Let the waters beneath the sky flow up together into one place, so dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land, and the waters ceased. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant, and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And this is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the third day. Then God said, Let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs in the, the mark the seasons, days and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, uh, the lighter one to govern the day 
and the smaller ones who govern the night. He also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light up the earth, to govern the day and night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the fourth day. Then God said, Let the light swarm, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds and every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water, and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And, and that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of that same kind. And God saw that was good. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry around the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth, and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given you every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. That is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And the evening passed, the morning came, marked the sixth day. All right. So, <clears throat> let's look at Genesis 1-1, the first part of the verse. In the beginning, God. So, I mentioned some of this on uh, Sunday, and we'll cross over a few things that have already been said. Um, what this means is that God was already in existence when time began. As I said Sunday, something has to have always existed. Now, that could be matter and energy in some form, the universe in some form, or something that could bring the universe into existence. Scientific evidence points to something outside the universe that is powerful enough, and with the design evident in the universe, intelligent enough to bring it into existence. So God already existed when the universe was created, because it says, in the beginning God, so he was already there. He's the ground of all being, as I mentioned on Sunday morning. He's the basis of existence. Um, that ground of all being uh, was a, uh, a, is a quote from uh, St. Thomas of Aquinas. That's what he said about God. In Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. God is eternal. Now, if you're interested, I have some more in-depth uh, discussion, a more in-depth study of the cosmological and the teleological arguments for God's existence. That is the argument from co first cause and the argument from design. Um, but this idea of God existing forever as 
an entity that is above and beyond space and time is intellectually credible. It's reasonable. There is um, reason to disbelieve that an infinity of actual objects can exist. That means talking about an infinite universe may well be nonsense. Now, I can get into more detail there, but that's something that you can read in William Lane Craig's book, uh, A Reasonable Faith. Um, he's done a good bit of study on that. Then Genesis 1.1b, in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created all that is ex nihilio. Say that for me. That means from nothing. Now, even scientists are forced to say that ultimately we get back to a point where the universe had to have come into existence from nothing. But even scientists would not be willing to understand nothing in the same way as a philosopher would understand nothing. Nothing means no thing. Now, I've done this experiment in the past, and we won't do it this evening, but I've had people close their eyes and attempt to imagine nothing. But see, even the act of imagining nothing is something. You cannot imagine nothing. The act of attempting to think of nothing is something. What we're saying is the universe came into existence from a set of resources that are beyond it and outside it. So uh, we're left to grapple with what that set of resources are. And as uh, if you're interested, if we do this little uh, little study, we'll talk about the cosmological argument, and we'll show that God is the most reasonable assumption there um, without even having to get into the Bible. But hopefully what you're seeing unfold here in Genesis is that Genesis is, in fact, reasonable. Nothing cannot produce something, but an all-powerful intelligence can produce anything. Would you agree? Yes? So th this is the thesis of Genesis 1. I want you to understand Genesis 1.1 is what you need to focus on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From that point forward, we have a picture of God superintending a process of creation. All right? So the balance of the chapter uh, reveals this truth, we could say somewhat poetically. It, re it reveals it phenomenally. All right? Now, you have probably... And Elijah's following along with my notes here. So if some of this kind of trips you up, you'll see that these are more detailed notes and they're there on the screen. And you can always take a picture of the screen if you would like. Um, phenomenal. You've heard that word. That's phenomenal. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. But the word phenomenal actually means uh, it appeals to appearance, right? So this is an account that is based on appearance. Right? So I've got a variety of different people in this room of different ages, right? Um, Maddie, you're 11 now? Almost 12. You're killing me. You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me. 14 or 15 now? Fifth, already 15? Almost 15. Two 18 year olds, 20 somethings, 30 somethings, others of us up there somethings. <laughs> Genesis can be explained to anyone with any level of education 
at any point in time in history. You know, we, we have these views about the world that have been set in place largely in the, the 20th century. Well, what did people do before that? Well, they were just all stupid and they were wrong. <laughs> I, I know that, that we've all been led to believe that, you know, the uh, understanding that the world is round and so forth is, is relatively recent, but there's actually ancient evidence that people believe that the earth was round. So um, we think we're far more intelligent than people from previous eras. But if you try to read some of the things that were written by, let's say, the Greek philosophers, the most famous of whom are, you know, between two and four hundred years before Jesus, they were brilliant. So there have always been brilliant people and they've had certain ideas and assumptions and some of those are right and some of those are wrong. The beauty of Genesis is it could be read to anybody at any intellectual level at, in any era of time and still understood to have the same purpose. God created the heavens and the earth, and he did that through a process. So I was here last night with all my karate kids. It was lots of fun. And uh, one of our, our two youngest karate kids, one of them is back there in the back right now, right? Um, and, uh, and there's also a little boy uh, who is uh, one of our little karate kids as well. And uh, Naomi and Shiloh, our little three-year-olds in the class. And Shiloh came up to me and after class and he said, when I was your age, I was as tall as you. And he started going into all this description of what life was like when he was my age. <laughs> I just looked at him and the kid, you've never been my age. In fact, I'll be in heaven when you get my age, right? How do you explain something as complex as the universe to someone who doesn't understand time? You know what? I bet anything that you parents back there could read and probably already have read and or explained Genesis 1 to your daughter. A three-year-old can understand it. An almost 12-year-old can understand it. An almost 15-year-old can understand it. 18-year-olds can understand it. Old people can understand it, right? I have a master's degree. There are others in this room that have various degrees. Or you might not even have a college. It doesn't matter. You can understand it. That's the point, all right? Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void. Huh. How do you have a formless and void earth? That's just impossible to put in your brain, isn't it? Because as soon as I say earth, what's the picture that snaps into your mind? Huh? Round, a globe. We automatically think of that beautiful blue globe hanging in space. These people didn't have that picture. Hmm. The earth was formless and void. It, that means it was empty and without form and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So I want you to imagine that you are floating on a sea in absolute darkness. Now somehow you're not worried about breathing and drowning or anything like that. Maybe you're in a boat. 
But see, if I say a boat, then there's structure around you. What I want you to understand is that this is just a restless, formless, dark ocean. That's all we've been given so far. You see, Genesis chapter one comes from a point of view. Every play you've ever been in, every book you've ever read, every news story you listen to has a POV, a point of view. We have a point of view from what we know as the surface of the earth. And that point of view is coming from the Spirit of God who's moving over the waters. So the rest of this comes from this perspective of the Spirit who is on the surface of the earth. We don't know it as a globe. We don't, there's no light. We can't see anything yet. All we know is there is this vast, empty, dark, deep sea, right? We know it's water, so he's hovering over the surface of the waters. So the Holy Spirit is the POV. In the telling of the story, there's a, of a, any story, there's a point of view. In the observation of any event, there's a point of view. By the way, we have three gospels that are called the synoptic gospels. Do you know what they are? Come on, children of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why are they called synoptic? Because they share a point of view. <clears throat> then we have John, and it is very possible that that's the next thing that I will do in church, uh, is to go through the Gospel of John. And John shares a different point of view. Same Jesus, different point of view, right? You heard that old, that old story about uh, uh, the blind men that all were seeking to describe an elephant? Yeah. Right? These are all, they're all blind men and women. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sexist. All right. Blind men and women all seeking to describe an elephant. And one young lady said, well, an elephant is like a snake. Like a snake? What are you doing? Another guy said, no, an elephant is like a wall. Another one said, no, an elephant is like a, 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 the trunk of a tree. Well, what were they doing? They were reaching out with their limited perception, and they were touching each of them a part of the elephant. The one who thought it was a snake, perhaps a big snake, was touching the trunk of the elephant. The one who thought it was a wall is touching the, the side of the elephant. They're huge. The one who thought it was a tree was touching the, the leg of the elephant. Do you see how they can all be right? And we're living in a society today where everybody screams at everybody else and tells them how stupid they are, what morons they are, and how wrong they are. Maybe if we started listening to each other, we can gain a whole new perspective. Instead of saying, you know, I'm wrong. No, you're wrong. No, I'm right. No, you're right. No, maybe we can learn from each other, all right? So there's a point of view here, and the point of view is, uh, for Genesis 1, is one with which anyone throughout history could identify. The Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. So he presents a personal point of view from what we know as the Earth's surface. All right, let's look at this idea of uh, the Earth being formless, uh, a dark void. Initially, the Earth was devoid of life and even light. 
no life, no light. Now, scientifically, that's true. There was a point in which the earth was covered with water, there was no land, and there was no life, and believe it or not, the atmosphere was so dense with water vapor that light couldn't even penetrate to the surface of the ocean. So scientifically speaking, there was a time when if you were on the earth, it would have been a dark, formless void, right? But I want you to notice something already exists to be formed. You see, that first verse is the most important one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is an earth to be formed. Are you following me? All right. This is in the text. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's Genesis 1-3. One theory uh, in attempting to understand Genesis 1 is called the Revelation Day Theory. That means that each day of creation is a day of revelation. It is a day wherein God reveals that he created and what he created. That under, uh, do you understand that? So light must exist if anything else is to be revealed. So th there's a cue here. The first thing that is created or revealed is light. So we can see. This is a visual account of creation. It's not some sort of a, uh, a theoretical account. It's saying this is what you would see if you were on the surface of the earth and God was showing his creation to you. So, um, from a Revelation Day perspective, Genesis 1-3 reveals the truth that God created light, not the point in time he created it. Did you hear me? From a Revelation Day perspective, we're not saying that God created light at this point in time. We're saying that he created light in order that we can see everything else, right? It is highly likely that the earth was once a water world. This is uh, Hugh Ross, and this is uh, in this book. The surface was completely inundated in liquid water, and the atmosphere was filled with dense water vapor. So from the point of view of the Holy Spirit, on the surface of a primordial earth, initially, no light would have reached the planet's surface. However, from a scientific perspective, as Earth developed, atmospheric water became less and less dense and light began to pass through to the surface. How do you understand this, okay? If you go down deep, deep, deep in the depths of the ocean, it's dark. You can't see anything because light won't penetrate all the way through that density. It is possible for water vapor to be so thick in the atmosphere that light is refracted all around so that you cannot see it if you're on the surface. But see, as the planet developed, that water vapor in the atmosphere or in what would become the atmosphere dissipated, became increasingly less dense until you could see the light penetrating through to the surface of the earth, all right? 
Does everybody understand what I'm trying to get at here? All right. So as the earth developed, atmospheric water became less dense, light began to pass through to the surface, voila, the existence of light is revealed to a person stationed there. We're not saying, I do not believe Genesis is saying, that there was this primordial earth that was created before light was created. In fact, if you look at the sheet of paper that I gave you, uh, light and darkness were separated very, very early, according to scientists. Um, so uh, here from Hugh Ross on this uh, slide, opaque to light, during the Earth's infancy, it at its atmosphere was opaque to light. So that is on page 53 of this book, all right? So water may exist in three states, solid, liquid, or gas. Water causes light to reflect and or refract. As a result, at great depths, the ocean is completely dark. The same possibility exists with water vapor. Light could be so reflected and refracted that it fails to pass through the other side of the dense water vapor. All right, so I already communicated that to you. I just thought I would read it in my notes there. Light separated from darkness. This is the most fascinating thing. Uh, I had never understood this or thought about this or heard this uh, until a decade or so ago when I read this book. So Genesis 1-4, God saw the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. So Hugh Ross has a, a whole section or a whole chapter in this book talking about why the universe is dark. Why isn't it just bright everywhere? It's full of stars, right? So because light possesses material properties and occurs within the time-space continuum, and because light travels at a constant speed, anybody know? Don't look up there. Do you know? Do you know? I already saw it. 186,000 miles per second. Um, the greater the distance we observe something, the further back in time it happened. This is the most difficult thing for those that would hold that the, the uh, universe was created in six days to factor in. We're looking deep, deep, deep into space. And we can look so far into space now that we can see actually uh, to the point near the beginning of its creation, right? This gives us abundant evidence that the universe is not five to 7,000 years old. According to Hugh Ross, uh, referencing five years of collected data from the WMAP, uh, go to the next slide, slide, Lige, that's the WMAP picture. That's a, the Wilkinson microwave anistropy probe, and that's a map of the universe from that probe. It is now possible to see so far out into space as to look back in time and observe the point at which light separated from darkness. That agrees with scripture. There was a point at which light was separated from darkness. Who would have even thought of that? Light was separated from darkness. Well, this occurred at the beginning of the universe over 13 billion years ago, right? God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Well, let's talk about that now. Hmm. There was evening and there was morning. Okay, so we now have a cue as to what group of people this was originally written to. When does a day start? 
When does a new day start? Sunrise. What time? Sunrise. It starts on sun, sundown if you're a Jew. It doesn't start sundown for us. Midnight. It's still inaugural day. Joe Biden was inaugurated earlier today. It's still the same day. We're still the same day. When does tomorrow start? Okay. When does tomorrow start for you? Probably when you get up in the morning, right? But in terms of our clock, when does tomorrow start? Midnight. Isn't that kind of random? You ever thought about that? The next day starts in the middle of the night. Right? So there are different ways of looking at this. For the Jewish person, and down to our day, this is true, sundown marks the end of the previous day and the beginning of a new day, right? So we're talking to a particular group of people and the way they observe the world, right? Number two, how do we define a day? How do we define what a day is? 24 hours. How do we define that? The earth rotates around the sun. Oh, no. No, no, no. When it, act, oh, it spins on its axis. Yes. <laughs> so we define a day as the time that it takes the earth to rotate one time around on its axis. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's no rotating anything here. All we've been given to know is that there is this void. There's no circular earth. In fact, have you read the Genesis account and paid attention? On what day do the sun, the moon, and the stars get created in Genesis 1? Uh-oh. They don't show up until day four. We don't have anything to measure a day at this point in time. That should be a cue to all of us that something else is going on here. Other than God saying, a 24-hour period has passed. Now, that's not to say that God can't create everything in six 24-hour periods. God is God. But do we have evidence in the Scripture and in science, that that is what took place. I don't think so in either case, right? Let's go back and let's talk about another theory. And what we're doing is we're consolidating these two theories of uh, explaining and understanding Genesis. We're creating a concordist view of Genesis versus science, right? Instead of contrasting them, or as one uh, famous evolutionary uh, biologist had it, um, that the, the Bible and theology and science are what he called non-overlapping magisteria. In other words, they, they occupy their own realms, their own worlds, and you really can't try to uh, talk about them corresponding. It's kind of like talking about the Marvel Universe versus the DC Universe versus the Star Wars Universe. They're not the same, are they? They're different views in different worlds, right? And you can't make them anything like our world either. They are their own. And so this is what these, you know, uh, 
this particular individual, and this is a, a, uh, a view that some scientists take, and indeed that some theologians take, that you just need to read the Bible and not try to make it agree with science in any way. But I take a concordist view. I'm an accommodationist. I'm just an inveterate accommodationist. I want to see how this all works together because God really did create the heavens and the earth, and I want to know how that went down. Right Now, I may not be able to understand uh, how it went down in detail, but I can understand the basic idea, and I think that that's what Genesis is trying to give us. So another way of understanding this, a concordist way of understanding how Genesis may agree with science is called the day-age theory. This perspective permits a correlation with what scientists understand today. Each day of creation represents an undefined era of time. Okay, let's go back and look at some of the ways that we use the word day. Obviously, we use day to refer to today. I had a good day. I had a bad day, right? But have you ever heard somebody old like me say, well, back in my day? Have you ever heard somebody like me? Maybe you've even heard me say that. Well, back in the day, we did it this way. What does that mean? Does that mean that there was a 24-hour period back there that was my day? Well, back in my day, which was when I was 15 years old, and I was finally out of middle school, and it was just a really good day, and that was my 24... No, 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 no. I'm talking about a time period. In fact, I'm talking about an undefined time period. Would it surprise you to learn that the Hebrews used the word yom, which is the Hebrew word for day, exactly the way we use the English word day? They use it in a variety of, of ways. Back in the day, in my day, in Jesus' day. In fact, in Genesis 2-4, it says, in the day that the Lord made the heaven, or made the earth and the heavens. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought he made the earth and the heavens in six days, and now it's saying he made it in one day. The Bible is disagreeing with itself. Or is the Bible just being literary and using the word day the way you would use the word day? In the time period that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. And listen to this. Uh, Isaiah 11.10 through the beginning of 11.11. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. This is talking about the messianic time period, right? The root of Jesse is Jesus. And it's talking about a time period when Jesus will stand as a signal for the peoples and will gather all the peoples to him. Is that a 24-hour period? No. It's using that word day the same way we use day to refer to an undefined period of time. All right? Um, so this next slide, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this shows all of the different ways um, that the word yom is used. And there it is in Hebrew over here on the far left right there. Uh, the authorized version, that's uh, kind of a King James-ish version, translates as day 2008 times, as time 64 times, chronicles and times, daily 32 times, ever 17 times, year 
14 times, continually 10 times, when 10 times, as 10 times, while 8 times, full 8. Are you following me? It's used a lot of different ways. Okay? So, let's go to our main man, uh, Hugh Ross, and talk about this day-age theory. Earth, by the observed principles of planet and crust formation, and the universe by its very size, argue against creation dates only a thousand years ago. Well, uh, that's him from 99, but I read that again out of this book. Uh, this next uh, is a beautiful picture deep into the universe. Uh, go to that next picture, if you will, line, because it's an actual picture picture, right? Let's go to day two. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so God called the expanse heaven or sky as your translation had it. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. So um, when we talk about the heavens, we talk about our atmosphere, right? And we can talk about space. This is talking about our atmosphere. So let's continue on with this day-age idea. So the water vapor that was uh, in what would become the atmosphere dissipated enough so that light could penetrate. Eventually that water vapor dissipated enough so an actual atmosphere could begin to form. Does that make sense? So I want you to follow this. This is a revelation day and day-age way of understanding uh, Genesis chapter one. Um, Hugh Ross says, in its youth, the planet's atmosphere was translucent. Once the density of water vapor above the surface of the earth dissipated sufficiently, a visible separation could be observed between the solid mass of clouds above our planet and the pan-oceanic surface below. This created a primordial atmosphere, not yet habitable for humans due to its limited oxygen. Oxygen at this early stage was less than 1% as opposed to today's 21%. You wouldn't have been able to survive that far back. But that's okay. God was preparing the planet for us. Day three. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So, this idea of water dissipating and receding continues. It says, let the waters be gathered in one place. So we're really talking about an early understanding of uh, land appearing. And scientists will tell you that originally all land on earth was connected. It's called Pangaea. Only later did it separate into the continents that we know. So as the planet is developing, now the water above has dissipated enough to form an atmosphere. The water below has begun to gather into one giant ocean and one giant uh, land, okay? Now that we have land and we have the ocean separated, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning 
a third day. So land appears, vegetation appears on the land. Um, as water dissipated above, forming the atmosphere, so water receded from the face of the earth, tectonic plate movement pushed land masses above the surface of the Pan-Oceanic surface. Initially, this would have been various islands, according to uh, Hugh Ross, that's within the top of your, uh, the top of your mountains as it pushes further up and up. There's also evidence in the biblical text of, text of Pangaea, one giant supercontinent. Let's talk about oxygenation, which, by the way, remember we have an atmosphere, but we don't have enough oxygen in it. How do we get oxygen into the atmosphere? We need plants. And guess what? That's the first thing that we have. Humans don't come around first. Animals don't come around uh, yet because they can't breathe. There's no oxygen. Guess what? God created plants first. Bacterial and plant life were surely the first kinds of living organisms on earth. Here, the order of creation as presented in Genesis is essential. Complex life forms would have been impossible without simpler life forms that produce oxygen through photosynthesis. Um, Hugh Ross says, for such oxygen to accumulate to the required level, a huge abundance of photosynthetic life had to work aggressively to pump out enough oxygen to fill oxygen sinks, that is oxygen absorbing minerals. So see, land had to be there for those minerals to absorb the oxygen. This is so beautiful the way God did this. In both Earth's crust and mantle, oxygen also had to reach appropriate levels in Earth's atmosphere. It took such life 3.8 billion years to raise the atmospheric oxygen level from less than 1% to its present 21%. That's a lot of time. But to God, time is irrelevant. We make time a big deal. God is above time. Day four. Here's the tricky one. Sun, moon, and the stars. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And <clears throat> let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Wait a minute. Well, we already have light on the earth. Huh. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. What happens? So my next slide is titled, Houston, we have a problem. Any middle school science student knows which came first, teenagers, stars or planets? Stars. Stars are necessary for planets to be created. So how do we account for Genesis showing us that they were created on the fourth day? Oh, I gave it away, showing us. One word, revelation. We already have the statement, God created the heavens and the earth. As we've indicated, the rest of Genesis 1 is a revelation of those events to an observer on the earth's surface. Look at this next one, transparent atmosphere. Only when earth reached what astronomers and physicists call middle age, an age of over four billion years, did its atmosphere become transparent enough to enable its inhabitants to observe the most distant objects in the universe? Thus, the fourth day reveals the order in which the earth was formed, not the order in which the universe was created. Are you understanding us? You understand how the day-age theory and the revelation day, day theory all come together and how we see this beautiful picture of God simply revealing to you, showing to you that 
he created the heavens and the earth. You're on the surface of the earth. You don't know it's a globe. You don't know anything. You just see what God shows you. The first day he creates light. And then he begins to show you how he is creating everything else. And this is the, the creation is focused on the earth itself. So the revelation of the existence of sun, moon, and stars beyond the clouds would have come after light, atmosphere, land, and plants, because those would have all preceded the atmosphere becoming translucent enough to see out into naked space. Day five, fish and birds. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters, large fish, right? And every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. So now we have the most complex life that is yet seen. There may be reference here to what we would call dinosaurs if we're looking at these sea monsters as some sort of uh, uh, primordial creature. God created the great sea monsters. Day six, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. This is interesting to me. He says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Just think about that for a minute. Now, this didn't happen on its own. I'm not advocating some form of uh, naturalistic evolution, but I want you to notice it says that God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Cattle, creeping things, <clears throat> excuse me, beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts, so it's clear that he made them of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind, everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the question is, is this a reference to some form of what we could call guided evolution. Certainly, there is a process at work here. And increasingly, Darwinian evolution is falling further and further short of, of, of having any explanatory power, especially as concerns, ironically, the origin of the species. Darwin's famous book. Sadly, Darwinian evolution can't explain the origin of any species. And we'll get into that in more detail if you're interested in going into this uh, in my teleological argument. So we see the relatedness of human beings and the creatures of the land. So there is a relationship. You know, there, there's, there are statements that are made, well, you know, you, you share like 90 some percent of your DNA with monkeys, with chimpanzees. To say that another animal has a similar body plan does not mean that you are identical. And as I made clear on Sunday, you are um, distinct, you are unique, you are exceptional because of the way God made you. And that's what we're going to get to next. And I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to skip to that real quick here. Humans are unique. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we are the pinnacle of the process. From God's perspective, we're the purpose for the process. He desired us. He made the entire universe so that we could exist and be in awe of our creator. 
Humankind has fallen, but the design in the universe points to the existence of the Creator. Humans have come at the perfect moment in time to seek and to find this amazing God. Don't believe the voices that would tell you that science and the Bible are mutually exclusive. Understand that there is a way to understand things. There's a way to recognize uh, the, the way Scripture has written uh, and revealed things to us and the way nature reveals things to us. And use your brain and ask questions. And don't believe every voice that talks to you, right? The mind of God is revealed to us in the Scripture and in the heavens. The Scripture says, the heavens declare the, the glory of God, the firmament His praise. And then it talks about the Word of God, the law of God, right? We call that general revelation and special revelation. When I go out in nature, I, I'm in awe. I used to take teenagers to uh, Colorado uh, skiing, and you know we would, you know, go up the the lifts into the the Rockies. It's how people can state that this came about as the result of sheer chance and not be in awe of a creator is is simply beyond me. It's arrogance, is what it is. So, all right. Well, God bless you guys. I appreciate you. Thank